Welcome to the Cartography Podcast. Right now I'm in the middle of planning a trip across the country. I live in the Pacific Northwest right now, outside of Seattle. Um, so we're planning to go spend some time with my parents back in Pennsylvania and make it a big, make a big road trip out of it. Um, but really, I think we've just had a, had enough of the the urban environment here, and at least for the short term, uh, trying to get out of it. Uh, maybe spot some new places to live and see what's out there a little bit. Well, Jay, I think the, the question obviously burning a hole through everyone's minds right now is why on earth would you want to leave Seattle? Well, it, it's honestly gotten to the point where it feels dangerous. Like that's, mm-hmm. it, it, this sounds preposterous to people who don't live in metro cities. Well, well, maybe not so much anymore, honestly, with the with the riots going on. But I mean, really, it's felt this way for at least the past couple years, but it's really come to a head now where things just feel legitimately uncertain. And honestly, it doesn't feel safe to stay here with a family anymore. Like that, that's honestly the way that it feels to me right now. Can I tell you, I have lived in like at least five major, I mean, I've lived in New York, Chicago, Philadelphia, uh, San Diego, those are the kind of the big cities that I've lived in, and then Seattle. And for some reason, I, I don't really know if, if other people feel this way, but there was something very unusually dangerous to me, at least in terms of how I felt uh, about Seattle. You know, it's the same, it's the same type of situation in Portland, too. Like, they don't feel the same way that, like, East Coast cities feel like feel dangerous you know it's it's like a different i mean i guess we can try and figure out exactly what it is but it's it's a different type of (laughs) there's just something else in the air out here you know there really is that's a good way to put it there's something in the air out there yeah i feel like you encounter a lot more i mean i guess to be more specific about it it seemed to me like the proportion of people who were like literally batshit crazy, like schizophrenic or on some kind of super debilitating substances, like to the point where it, it just like makes them into something not recognizable. It was just way higher in, in Seattle. You know, I think, I think the weather has a lot to do with it. That's my own personal take. That's like interesting. For literally for like eight, nine months out of the year, it's like between 40 and 60 degrees and rainy and cloudy. It just like makes it's mid- miserable. Yeah. Yeah, it's like mid June right now, and we've had like only a handful of sunny days, and like God, just looking at the sucks, looking at the date and thinking it's like mid June. It's like sixty degrees out. It's like I remember being on the East Coast. We'd have had like weeks where it was like ninety degrees by now. I know? mean, I'm in the you know notoriously frigid Vermont, and uh, it's been beautiful, sunny, warm, just blissful weather for a couple weeks now. What is the climate like there year round? Oh, well, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's a a pretty typical kind of temperate, you know, mountain climate. Uh, It's like, just like you would find in most deciduous forests, except it's at a pretty Northern latitude. So it's, it's cold. We get, we get very long winters. Um, I mean, winter here lasts pretty solidly in terms of like, you know, cold enough to where you need to like really put on a coat and gloves and stuff to go outside. Uh, that lasts from November to 
all through April, really. I mean, so April is practically winter. Um, and it's really only in May that, that it starts to get nice and warm. So is it pretty similar to like New York and Philadelphia? Well, except it's just like, it, like kind of, if you can think of it on a spectrum where, I mean, I feel like there was hardly a winter at all in Philadelphia when I lived there. I mean, it, it, that, when I compare that to the climate here, it was like the South down there. And most of it, I think, just has to do with the fact that this is a mountain climate. You know, it's just at a higher terrain. So um, it's less just kind of balmy and less, I feel like when you, when you get anywhere near the East Coast, you know, you really get some pretty intense summers. Um, yeah, you know, I feel like a lot of those places are going to become more popular now, though. Um, like, I think a big reason for it is there's a lot of a lot more work going remote. People can do stuff online and like, People, I mean, people originally came to the cities for, for work opportunity, you know, Absolutely. but if you, if you could get the same employment opportunities, I mean, I don't think, I don't think you'll get the same type of employment opportunities remote. Like I think generally you'll make way less money and be more replaceable, but I think that's going to be a sacrifice that more people are going to be willing to take. Um, but well, yeah, especially, you know, in exchange for a significantly lower cost of living, you know, and frankly, I mean, this is maybe subjective, maybe not everyone agrees, but just a much lower stress level, a much kind of more comfortable quality of life. Uh, I don't think people consider, you know, just what it really does to them sitting in rush hour traffic on the freeway for two hours a day, at least, you know. Well, I think people are starting to think about it right now, you know, like I think over the next year or two, you're going to see not not like most people leave cities or anything like that, but you'll see like a good percentage of people that are financially capable of doing so, I think we'll choose to do so. Um, but yeah, I, yeah I think it's going to be an interesting couple years for, um, for urban development or, or, or lack thereof. I think it's going to be really interesting to see like what actually happens to places like Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle, New York. I wouldn't be surprised if, um, like the federal government or even states started like subsidizing some of that stuff, you know, to just to incentivize people to, to move into those places. Maybe not. Um, and I would think less so the biggest cities like New York and San Francisco and more so the sort of the growing cities out in the Midwest and especially like in the South, you know, places like Austin, Nashville, Pittsburgh, places like that, which are, yeah, it's kind of a fine line with places like that because like, I mean, I, I, we went to Austin last year to consider maybe moving there. Mm-hmm. Um, we went to Denver a couple months ago. And it seems like that, like, a lot of those tier two cities are really just like a couple years behind, um, like places like California and Washington. Yeah. And I mean, I definitely would have said that um, before, you know, the apocalypse started here a couple <laughs> of months ago. Uh, but somehow I feel like this is a little bit of a, of a game changer. I'm not necessarily sure that that exact pattern of development is, or, or at the very least, I feel like there's a, you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe like places like New York and San Francisco are really going to be these, these like hyper rich colonies where just like literally nobody who makes less than like a million dollars a year will be able to live. And then, you know, maybe the, the tier two cities, as you say, will be kind of for like the, the more middle class, you know, I mean, still the same kind of pattern, but you know, they're not, they don't have the ocean view maybe. You know, I could still envision like, 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 like people moving out of the cities to more remote places and then just setting up 
like their home office there and creating like a small little homestead. Like, I think you're going to see that happen a lot more over the next couple of years with people that, with people that could do it. I feel like that's, uh, that's the sort of direction that you have been, you know, if not moving in, then at least thinking a lot about lately, what are your, what are your thoughts? I mean, I know you're going to be going on this road trip. Do you think you'll be kind of scouting out a, a place? And if so, you know, where have you been thinking? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of in the back of our mind. So we're planning this all-American road trip, pan-American road trip. <laughs> I love it. Um, so the plan is to just stay in campgrounds along the way, then maybe put in a hotel once or twice a week or something. But it should take us a little bit over a week or maybe two weeks to, to do the trip. But we don't have any timer, so so it should be fun. We'll be able to experience all the different places. Oh, and- dude, you'll love it. You know, I've done this literally... Uh- at least five, I think six times. Yeah. <laughs> six times. Six times. Yeah. If you count uh, the back and forth, like, I mean, I count the, because I would always try and go a different route. You know, I would take a different cross country interstate. Um, and then one, I know I took I-90 basically back and forth once from uh, from Seattle to, uh, to Vermont, actually, way back when. Yeah, you know. To me, I think the ideal situation would be to live in, to live outside of a city with like less than like a hundred thousand people mm-hmm. and and live like outside of that. But I mean, even now you're seeing stories of like small towns in Wyoming that only had like like tens of thousands of residents, like double and triple in population. Like I've even seen examples like that. And then like you see the city completely overwhelmed, and then like the city council is trying to like handle the situation, and it's already out of control. So it's like. It's almost the, the bigger issue is almost how rapidly the city grows and how fast it is to adjust, you know, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how places like that are really going to manage to absorb that kind of influx and, you know, maintain anything close to what they're used to. I mean, unfortunately, it probably means in most cases that that they won't. And I mean, I would, I would imagine in most of those cases that that kind of thing is relegated to college towns, you know, because for the most part, I don't know where else people from cities would go. I mean, there just aren't any jobs in, in most of Wyoming, you know, unless you're a rancher or a farmer of some kind. I mean, what would you do? You know, I've even seen people from some smart people on Twitter that I've come across who are actually like actively planning and working on moving to a new place together to set up their own like local community almost. So like, I think you might even see more things like that of people like leaving together with their, with their friends and family. And then just like trying to establish communities. There's a whole website, um, ICC dot something. Uh, it's yeah, it's intentional communities and you can literally, you know, they have it sorted by state and, um, it's just all of these different, I mean, they have a, so many different variations of it too. You know, some of them are just straight up like hippie communes. Some of them are religiously oriented. Some of them are, uh, you know, you, you pay into it essentially. And some of it is just, you just kind of buy a plot, you know, and it's essentially just like a condo, but, but they have kind of a, um, you know, a little bit of a more self-sustaining model. Yeah. That's really interesting. Like yeah. it, you, we'll you really could in the show notes. You really could though just buy up like a plot of like a hundred acres and then plan to build like 
10 houses on it. This know? is what people used move to do. A bunch of people there. Yeah. I mean, this is what, um, that, that used to essentially be what, uh, a lot of the, you know, American pioneers would do. Um, I don't think you, you heard as much about that kind of more collective aspect of it, but it, it, I mean, why wouldn't they, you know, I mean, where are people making, barely making ends meet trying to trying desperately to get out of the city and make something on their own where are they going to get the money to you know to not only buy the land but uh kind of set them i mean you can't just show up somewhere and hope to make a living unless you're like you know like a really good hunter for instance and like you really which in those days people could actually do that stuff fairly reliably in most cases but nowadays most of us you know I know I sure don't. I mean, I've been trying my hand at hunting for a couple of years now and uh, trying my hand is literally, you know, that's about as far as I've gotten. I mean, <laughs> it is no easy thing, you know. You know, it feels to me like there's, we've really undergone a transition in the last couple of years where it maybe just this is just my own personal thoughts and experience, but it feels like people like the, the dream used to be to come to cities to find opportunity to make it rich and and establish a life for your family there. But now it seems like at least this year for sure seems like a turning point where it, it seems like it's going to be people that stay in cities are going to be the people who can't get out. Oh yeah. And I mean, the only thing to, that I would say to that is that, you know, that whole idea of people dreaming of going to cities to make it big. I mean, that's very much a, a constructed set of circumstances. You know, it was, um, I mean, in the, in the American context that really, that wasn't really much of a thing before the um, before the 1930s. Well, you're from this. You're from New York City, right? Oh yeah, yeah. I'm so, like, a, was I'm... your like what was your interpretation? Like, how how did you feel about that growing up? Like, did it still feel like oh, like New York is the place of opportunity, or like did city kids feel like they wanted to get out at some point? No, I don't. I don't think that. Um, I mean, uh, it's kind of a. It's, it makes me feel old. You asking me that question, uh, <laughs> just because I I'm thinking about like what what New York used to feel like, you know, um, dude, I can't imagine what it feels like now. I mean, like I went to, I went to school in New York city and I lived there for like six or seven years total. And I mean, it was great. Like I had, I had the time of my life when I was there. It was fantastic. But like now seeing all of what's going on, like regarding like the political correctness and all Mm -hmm. of this, it's like, it mustn't even be fun to live there anymore. I mean, I'm sure it's still, well, I guess it just depends on what, what sort of thing you can, you can tolerate. See, to me, the, the fun part of New York and really most cities these days are the immigrant communities. You know, like if you get out there in the, in the periphery in New York, you know, the, the outer boroughs, uh, you know, that's where you get, like, you can still kind of hang out with people who are having some fun. Uh, if, (laughs) Like, in other words, people who you can hang out with and you don't have to worry about like saying the wrong thing, you know, like if, uh, on the other hand, of course, you know, uh, I can certainly understand how a lot of people would feel out of place, uh, wandering into some, you know, some Russian bar in South Brooklyn. Um, but you know, I, I, in, in most of my experience, like, especially in, in American cities, like people are pretty, people are pretty welcoming and, um you know, it's, it's, it's fun. People should venture out into those areas. Cause they're, but yeah, I mean, for sure, the, the major, you know, you go to Manhattan now and it's just like unrecognizable as I don't even know how to describe. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just, it's so absurd. It doesn't even seem like most of the places that people seem to go to have fun 
are just, like, I don't even feel comfortable, you know, <laughs> walking. It's just so bizarre. Uh, you know, so we used to work together in Seattle and then you left, um, how many, how many years ago is it now? I mean, it's been like, what, almost four years ago now to late 2016. So how did, like, how long were you planning to get out? Um, okay. Well, I mean, I think I should might, I just, I should go ahead and start all the way at the beginning here because this is a long, long story. Um, I hope you guys will excuse me if I slurp my tea here and my throat gets so, dry. So towards the end though, you were working with the intention of, of getting out. 100%. Right? Yeah. I was not only working with the intention, I was dreaming intensely of, of, I mean, I was in a pretty rough spot there towards the end. I, I really, really hated that job, dude. Uh, <laughs> what, what wouldn't be fun about <laughs> monitoring riots, conflict, bombings, and, and yeah, <laughs> violence all, all the most ridiculous content on the internet and reporting it to all sorts of shady agencies. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I'm trying to think of the best way to sort of frame this. I was planning on moving to a, a rural place for quite a few years. I would say going back to before I even got the job where you and I were working together, uh, before I finished college, I definitely underwent a pretty dramatic, uh, kind of transformation, I would say in college. So let me, let me back up. Let me just go ahead and tell my, my life story here, Jay. Um, so, you know, like you said, I was born and raised in New York. Uh, I come from a, um, a Russian immigrant family. And, uh, so just like super kind of typical city, you know, background, I went to school like everyone else. And, um, somewhere along the lines, I decided that I wanted to join the military. At that time I was in high school living in San Diego area. And, um, so, you know, I went into the military and I did five years, um, it was a really, a, a pretty fun and fulfilling time in my life, to be honest with you, the, definitely all sorts of challenges and all that. But I, I still, to this day, look back on, you know, my time in the army pretty fondly made some pretty solid friendships. So how long were you actually in the army? Five years. Uh, if you count like the whole time that I was enlisted, uh, I did spend, because of the job that I had, I spent uh, over two years just in training, you know, before I actually went to an active unit. Uh, because I, so I, I enlisted as a, um, basically as a cryptologic linguist is the term that they use for my, my job. And um, despite the fact that I was a fluent Russian speaker and was very clear and open about that with them, they, for whatever reason, decided to like not really take that into account. And so they just sent me to um, they sent me to language school in um, in Monterey, California. And I'm not complaining because, you know, uh, I was there for a year and a half. And if you're going to be in the army, you know, Monterey, California is a is a nice spot to be. It's probably you know in the top five army posts in the in the world definitely in the continental u.s and um so i spent a year and a half there learning korean 
I then went briefly to San Angelo, Texas to uh, do the signals intelligence kind of training course at where I kind of studied the, the North Korean military, you know, from a, from an Intel perspective, which was really interesting. Um, and then of course I, I, that was the last that I ever had anything to do with anything Korean because, uh, I was sent to Fort Lewis, Washington, uh, which was a very kind of tactical unit. They were very much, uh, set up to deploy to combat zones. And after about a year and a half or two, close to two years, I ended up going to Afghanistan for six months, uh, came back for a couple of months and then went to Iraq for about five months, uh, before, before getting out. Um, when I got out, I went to college on the GI Bill, went back to San Diego for a while, did the community college thing. And then I went to, uh, decided I wanted to, at that time, uh, I wanted to join the foreign service. So what is that exactly? So the, the, the U S state department, uh, basically it's the U S diplomatic service. So I wanted to be, uh, I thought I wanted to be like a fancy, you know, diplomat. Uh, and then in the course of kind of my studies, I came to learn that it's, it's much less glamorous in reality, at least when you, when you first start, I mean, you're basically stamping passports in some third world country. And at that time I, you know, had kind of begun to settle down with my girlfriend who would eventually become my ex-wife. And, uh, you know, it would just, that whole thing became, began to seem like much less of a good idea. And, um, at, at around that same time, while I was in school in, in Philadelphia, I, um, I began to just really, I mean, it was like, what's so ironic about it is that in the course of studying to become like, a, you know, this kind of high end government servant, if you will. So what did you go back to school for? Uh, international relations is what I got my degree in. And so when I was studying that stuff, I mean, you would think that it was, that it was all kind of reinforcing the narrative. And a lot of it was, was certainly meant to, but, uh, as I continued to learn about the actual kind of history of U S international relations and just U S history in general, I definitely had like more of a history focus just because it was the kind of thing that fascinated me. Um, it, I really began to get very, you know, hashtag woke and, <laughs> and, and just, just kind of realize like, wow, this is all, you know, very, very different than, than what I thought. Um, so you didn't feel that way at all? Like when you were in the military? No, man. I mean, I was like pretty mainstream, you know, I, I identify, I mean, it was in the military for Christ's sake. I, I was all into, you know, I was very patriotic. I was, and I guess I, you could argue I still am in a way, but you know, I was patriotic in the sense of, um, kind of being an apologist for, you know, uh, uh the, the sort of the state as it, as it is now. And I didn't really see anything wrong with any of that. Uh, it just sort of struck me as the, the right thing. And, and, uh, you know, my, like I said, my parents are 
excuse me, my parents are immigrants. And so there was all this very kind of, you know, they immigrated to the U.S. in the 80s and it was all very kind of Ronald Reagan and, you know, uh, America's the best. And, and that was just like I grew up with all that stuff. And it was so how old are you when you're at when you're in Philadelphia right now? Uh, so at that time, I was, I guess, about 26, 27. So, yeah, I mean, I started, like I said, I went to school in the GI Bill. You know, I was in the Army for five years. So it was, I was an older college student, which is also, I think, part of what uh, made it a, a different experience for me generally. Um, because, you know, you just, you just see things through different eyes when you're like an impressionable child, basically, as most college kids are. Uh you know, I think seeing the seeing the education system like through the eyes of a more experienced and older person has to be it has to be a totally different experience than than like the, the people around you who came there right after high school who are still extremely idealistic about babies. about the entire experience. I mean, it was like literally it was like babies. It was like, you know, hanging out with babies, <laughs> which is I mean, it was you know, not to put anyone down. It's like that that's the normal path, you know, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just, they, they lack. So would you have to do like group projects with them? And stuff? Oh yeah, man. Oh yeah. No, it was, it was super weird. The whole thing was super. And I was like, and they would all just like, you know, look at me. like, oh, It was weird. It was weird, but it was so much fun, you know, um, in a lot of ways and also just extremely fulfilling. I mean, that is one thing that I would not change about my life for anything is, is having gone to college as an adult and getting to experience like that process of sitting in a classroom and like having the, you know, the sort of social wherewithal to actually get into an argument with a professor without feeling like there's some kind of demigod, um, you know, and I had a lot of fun with that. I mean, that whole thing was great, you know. Uh, and so, so I guess, um, bring me back on track here. Where was I? So, yeah. All right. So, so I, I just kind of. So at that point, you're still like, so you're in school, you're having second thoughts now about being a, like, like in the foreign service. Foreign service. Um, so, so like, are you still thinking at this point that you still want to like, live in the city and everything or, or yeah. is that starting to crumble as well? No, no. I mean that, that it, nothing else really occurred to me, you know, other than that, I still just figured I would get some kind of job. I just didn't exactly know what kind anymore. So, but I figured, you know, I'm like getting a degree at a prestigious school. I'm uh, you know, I have a military background. I mean, how hard could it, how hard could it be uh, <laughs> to, to make a, you know, six figure income in, in a, um, in America these days. See, that's that's another thing that I want to address is that people think that just because you go to a prestigious university that then you just walk into like six figure salaries and these these are the privileged people. But that's not at all like how the system goes. Children like, do not listen to that story. It is not true. For the love of God, <laughs> go be a plumber. You will have a much better life. It is true, though, it's that true. like. It is pretty much a precondition, like to get those elite jobs. Like you're much better off if you go to a prestigious and elite institution because the way recruiting works is that they take, like, they have quotas for each school that they take kids from. But like, when I went to recruiting events um, for like investment banking and stuff like this, there would be like, like, say Goldman Sachs was coming, there would literally be 
500 kids in an auditorium and then they would say they're going to take two people from our school <laughs> and then like after you go to a couple to of these to the death <laughs> basically and then after they were done like the, you're supposed to go up and like try and um what's i, I forget the phrase now i don't i don't have the lingo fresh in my mind anymore yeah you're supposed to go up and network with them so that like they would like they would just be swarmed by like all these people trying to like put their two cents in and like get their emails and get their cards and everything and it was yeah, literally wow them in like 30 seconds you know but yeah, but the point that I wanted to make was that people think that like everybody who goes to these elite schools are then like set for life after doing it. But that is not at all the case. Not even and, and it's really important to know that, especially for people that are in high school considering doing this stuff, that you're going to put yourself in, in it, like you're going to spend an extraordinary amount of money and it's still only going to be a small percentage of those people that really go on to, to make a lot of money. You're not just going to spend an extraordinary, because the thing is that's, I feel like that gives people the wrong impression to say, because they don't actually have to spend it. That's part of what makes it so dangerous. Like they, mm. they, they, they will essentially set it up so that you don't have to pay very much upfront. Uh, and you will end up in debt for like the foreseeable future. Like you will be put in a situation where you have so few options in your life with what you get to do because you are in ruinous debt and you have no way out. Yeah, I mean, what happened to me was I, I finished my degree in economics at a pretty prestigious university. And then I couldn't, I didn't get any of the, like any of the top investment banking jobs. And then I had to move home for a couple months. And then I eventually got a job as, as a temporary employee making $15 an hour in New York City at the company that we worked at together. And then I was there for like five years. But yeah, that was... Like that was how my that was how my career started. Wow, I didn't fresh out of college. As a temp, that's amazing. You must have been one of the first. Yeah, yeah, I was. I was one of the first people. Wow. There. that's so funny because I always kind of had this picture in my head of like you know the 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 like hyper startup fake because you know I mean that company was always very startupy in its culture and I always figured if anything the people who came on came on board sooner would have been kind of taken care of better. Uh, sounds like, sounds like no, no, definitely, <laughs> definitely, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, I guess the next kind of interesting part of the story is where this whole process of gradual, like, you know, waking up to the, the much kind of darker realities of us foreign policy and, and socioeconomic and political economy and um, just learning about how the world actually works as that was beginning to kind of make me less interested in joining that whole, you know, culture. Um, uh, how did you feel? How did you feel the like of the other students that you were around in those classes? Like, like, were they <laughs> were they like pretty red pilled about it all or were they like? just or, or did they believe the whole narrative completely because i mean these, these, these presumably these are the smartest kids in the country yeah but they're 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 babies dude this is the thing like yeah they're they're super smart in the sense that they i mean many of them uh not only did fit you know they, they were at the tops of their classes and and i think what's much more relevant to it is that they come from well-to-do families with uh pretty strong educational backgrounds, you know, so their parents went to college and like they, you know, they, they were pretty sharp in, in terms of the kind of basic educational skills. 
Um, so they, they definitely weren't stupid, like in that sense, but to listen to them sort of, it's, it's just, it's, I don't know. Like they're, I want to kind of allude to this without getting too deep into the school thing, because that, again, that really needs a whole episode of its own at least. Uh, but there is a, a fundamental aspect of the psychology of, you know, compulsory schooling, public schooling in particular, the sort of classroom system, which has, in my opinion, at least an effect of really infantilizing uh, people. And so by the time that someone grows up to, you know, late adolescence and they're in college, they, they really have not mastered what you would call the arts of association. You know, they don't really feel comfortable speaking with grownups. They don't really feel comfortable expressing themselves. And so, I mean, that was very, very evident in my experience. And, and that was, that was a big thing for me too, honestly, like just speaking from personal experience, like I, I minored in Spanish. So like we had to take all of these like classes in full Spanish and do public speaking and all of that. And like, it, I was like not <laughs> prepared at all for it. Like it was, it was pretty hard for me to do it, honestly. But, uh, oh, I mean, like before I was in the military, I was like right there with you. You know, I mean, I basically was just your, your typical, you know, suburban, high school kid and I, I had all of those weirdness things going on where you just like, you know, you would just rather be in a dimly lit room watching, you know, something on your computer. Like that's just like how we, you know, sort of grew up. And, um, so yeah, uh, to answer your question, I guess it, it was definitely very noticeable and, and it, it, but I don't want to give the impression that it was like some kind of like a, you know, like a like a soviet style like everyone's sitting there you know in in uniform and, and in unison answering questions in the affirmative and telling the teacher what they want you know there part of it was that i took a wide variety of different subjects like i really tried to, i was fascinated by school you know and so like i took history courses i took social i took a sociology course which was actually really interesting i have to admit um in a lot of different ways and, um, and so uh, you kind of saw all, all kinds, you know, you know, it, it's weird because like, like I went to a liberal arts school and I, I also took like a bunch of like general courses in mm-hmm. a lot of different subjects just because I had the opportunity to like, I, I see now a lot of people saying like, oh, like general knowledge is like the future. And like, this is how you're going to like make money if you get into like venture capital and finance, like you need to be a generalist, but like that, like, it's true that you'll learn a lot more that way and become a better, like, well-rounded person, but you still really need to be more money. (laughs) No, you still definitely need to be like a specialist, though, in in terms of applying that, like, into our economic system, just because like, all of the jobs are structured to be essentially replaceable parts. So like, if you don't have a specialist knowledge, like, you could go to interviews day after day and say you have general knowledge, but like, unless you could plug your skills into the into the like female end of the of the job it's not going to work so like i would really warn people against doing things like liberal arts colleges honestly yeah i mean it's interesting i mean first of all isn't that interesting that that that's like that right like they that they 
just pretty much don't incentivize a liberal arts education at all in our economy anymore. But And it's ironic because I'm sure both of us would say that that was the best part of it. it <laughs> you know? and, and I was going to say, I, I, while it's definitely true that, um, you know, you're, you're going to, you're going to pay for that big time. Uh, it, in many ways, I mean, it's still one of the most rewarding experiences of my life. You know, I think what it, what it kind of comes down to is, can you figure out a way to make use of it? You know, and, and it's much harder, you know, if you have these kinds of, especially if you don't learn it. I think another thing to kind of talk about with it is like a lot of people take these liberal arts classes, but they don't really like pay attention or try very hard. They don't like, they don't care, you know, so they don't learn very much and they don't, and they don't do it in any kind of a focused way. They don't study, you know, philosophy. They don't study like logic, rhetoric and grammar and those kinds of things that, and just like really learn the, the basics of, of uh, like how to understand things, like how to think. You know, I was lucky enough that I happened to stumble into a couple of classes like where they actually teach logic, you know, for one thing. Um, it was just absolutely transformative. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm making less than $19 an hour right now, you know, and it's like, that's the reality. Um, now, I mean, in my situation, that's not such, such a tragedy. I mean, I'm managing you know, I'm making a decent living, but I live, I live in the woods, you know, <laughs> so it's, um, you know, there should, they should be teach. I mean, not to get into a whole school thing, but like part of education really should be like teaching you how to make the kind of life that you want to live economically possible. Like it, it shouldn't just be about maximizing your income because like you could maximize your income and live in San Francisco and still not save any money. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that was kind of that was our experience, you know. I mean, the the salary that I was making in New York and Seattle would make someone freak out out here. I mean, you know, that kind of money. But it was like I was barely scraping by. I was going deeper into debt every single month. Yeah, and I, and to bring to bring it back to what we were talking about before, I mean, I think that's what people are realizing now, especially as they get squeezed harder and harder over the last couple of years. You know, absolutely. Okay, so getting back to my whole little little thing, um, at, at, at basically, let me just kind of try and make this a little bit faster. The the at, in the course of learning all that stuff and going through that whole journey, um, I really kind of came to figure out that the world that we were living in, that the you know economic construct that we were living in. Uh, was not only just like extremely uh, morally problematic, but also just completely physically unsustainable. Um, a big part of that was just, I mean, I feel like I started learning about like, first I kind of got into the whole like, like peak oil idea. I don't know if you're familiar with that at all. And then I kind of found out that that whole thing isn't entirely based in reality. Um, but it, it very much kind of sparked this consciousness in my mind of like, well, wait a minute, like we've got all this very complex centralized stuff going on. And it's, you know, at that time, again, the thinking was like, well, it's, it's running on oil and, I mean, however much of it there is that it's going to run out eventually. I mean, it's got to, you know, this is crazy. <laughs> like, 
How can we just like be acting like it's going to last forever? And then that whole, you know, once you start Googling those kinds of terms, you're really, you're heading down a path for sure. <laughs> and, and to make a long, I mean, to make it's a like, long, it's like, it's like a funnel. It's dude, like a funnel. It, it really is. I mean, and it's, it's just made to, to take nice, nice Jewish boys and just turn them into <laughs> freaks who live in the woods, you know? Uh, and so basically that kind of, I mean, a, a big spark for me was the whole uh, Federal Reserve thing and just like learning about the way that our monetary economy works, which I hope that that you will do kind of a, a longer episode on one See, day. See, now I thought the Fed was protecting us from deflation. <laughs> <laughs> the Fed is protecting us from ourselves, Jay. Didn't you hear that? They tell us that the problem in the economy is that we can't inflate the money fast enough. That's the problem. Yeah, yeah there are some problems. There's some problems. <laughs> and, and so so that that definitely kind of like really shocked me a lot when I realized that money isn't not only is it not real, but that like there's this basically I mean, correct me if I'm if I'm wrong here, but I feel like it's fair to generally say that the monetary system is set up in such a way that like, you know, the vast majority of people are pretty much prevented by its very construction from from making very much money. You know, I mean, not completely prevented. You can definitely you can sort of hack it. Uh, but for the most part, if you play by the rules, you're totally fucked and you're not you're not going to go up. You're going to get poor over the course of your life. You're going to lose purchasing power. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, I don't want to get too deep into it, but it's interesting that pe- like they people still buy these narratives about like the growing economy when when you have to understand that decades ago, like in the 1950s, the man worked and provided for his whole family, sent his kids to college and the wives just stayed home. Now we're in a situation where both parents work. They're still in debt. <laughs> Their kids go in debt to go to college. And then they tell us that there's no inflation. Well, I mean, and plus they, the kids, I mean, so many people our age can even barely afford to own property. You know, they can't even buy a home. Right. Yeah, they don't even and many, home. many of them can't even like rent. They like, they don't even move out of their parents' homes until they're closer to 30 in many cases, you know? Um, okay. I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to derail you. Sorry. No, but it's, it's, it's true. I mean, I just really briefly, one really fascinating statistic that I once heard, I, I never actually looked this up. I'm not hundred percent sure if it's true, but I once heard that in 1920, the average man, uh, you know, working a full-time job without a college degree could afford to, again, on average, feed a, a wife and five children. Yeah, I believe it. I mean, what, what really changed was in 1970 when they um, started fractional reserve banking and they, I forget if it's ended or started the Bretton Woods system. It's when they system. ended the Bretton Woods system. Okay, when they ended it, yeah. So if you look, this is the most interesting uh, economic chart you could look at. So like you see um, average wage per capita, like per, per person working in the United States, and then you see productivity. And they, they, they're both linear, completely in, in line with each other. And then when 1970 happens, productivity continues on its linear trajectory, like a, like a one over one slope. And then wage growth completely stagnates and it just goes level yeah. and, and we're still in that right now. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, um, 
plenty to get into there, but that was definitely a huge kind of eye opener for me. And honestly, I feel like it was like one thing led to another. It was like that turned to zeitgeist turned to, uh, 9-11 conspiracy videos. <laughs> oh, no. Turned oh, to, no. And then here was the, the real kind of moment uh, was when I saw the <laughs> – I wonder what people will think about this. But when I saw Alex Jones's Bohemian Grove <laughs> video uh, with those – Hold on, dudes, hold on. People, people that go to prestigious universities don't listen to Alex Jones. Yeah. Right? No, they don't, uh, unless they're, you know, 28 year old military veterans who, like, you know, just went down. I think, I think here, you'd you know? be surprised. I think there's more people that do than, than people think. That's, oh, that's actually days, the point that I was yeah, making. Yeah. These days for sure. And, and it also seemed like at that time, I mean, this was like around, you know, 2011, 12, um, there was just like this kind of energy with all that stuff, you know, like it just, everything felt so crazy. Uh, it was kind of on the heels of the whole 2008. I mean, that was, I think, a really big part of it, right? Like when that happened, a lot of people, I mean, I think those like that one bailout after the other thing that they did, which is like, well, not only well economically we speaking, like in my mind, the, the economy died in 2008. Like that's the way that I assess the financial situation. I mean, I think like, a lot of people kind of noticed that, you know, just without even knowing any of the numbers. Right, yeah, it felt it felt like it was like, palpable you know it really like, did like everything really seemed to to clearly change um in terms of just the the opportunity of of kind of upward mobility in the society like it just became a part of people's experience and somehow you know I mean, we've talked plenty about the media and all of this but just like the the mainstream culture around it to like the narrative didn't change you know like everything was just kind of the ship was being kept afloat somehow and people were still going about their business, but everything became way, way harder for people. And a lot well, of it's, people, it's the same everything. situation now with, with the coronavirus bailouts, but like, just, just so people have an idea of the scope of it, I think the extent of the bailout in 2008 was like $800 million or $800 billion or maybe a trillion. And, and the last, like so far, the total coronavirus bailouts have been over $4 trillion. So like it's it's orders of magnitude bigger than the last one. So, which so by the, the logic, feeling, I mean, it's got to be exponential, right? I mean, if if you've got like inflating currency, basically, the the by the nature of the debt based currency, it's it's got to be like that. Yeah, I mean, it, it, to me, it's entering a really dangerous situation because I mean, like, if you're taught like we were just talking about how it was palpably different in the years following two thousand and eight. I mean, I and I think that's what you're experiencing right now. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I think we're. We're yeah. just getting started in it, but I think this is this is going to last for some time now. Yeah. So, I mean, first, I, I think it's hilarious, by the way, that this was in, <laughs> this is intended to be a conversation about permaculture and all this. But you know, <laughs> no, we're still going to we're still we going to get there. We're absolutely <laughs> going to get there. But I mean, I think it's it's it, to me when I think back on this, I, I I don't know if I've ever sat down and kind of told this whole story, you know, because really it's been this like. This is where the, all this stuff really kind of started for me uh, is, is when I ultimately realized that to try and play this game that most people are playing and, and compete in this economy seems like a very bad idea, you know, and like I think like it seems like it's like maybe the analogy is it's like a sheet of ice like you're on a you're on a lake 
it covered with ice and then you, you just start to learn more and then it's like it, it's like you start seeing cracks appearing in the ice and then totally. eventually you get to a point where like what you thought you were standing on is just not it's not there anymore and then you're just you're you're, you're sinking you and yet it's like up until you know it breaks from under you like there's nothing wrong you're perfectly comfortable and safe you know and so you and you realize that dynamic and i mean to be clear like for whatever reason and i'm not saying this like to make it sound like i'm special in any way i don't know why somehow this occurs to me and leads to certain conclusions that prompt action and why it doesn't seem to for so many other people because the thing is i know i mean i know people personally who understand all of these things perfectly well and ultimately they just don't care um in in the sense that like that you know they're not going to give up their sort of uh professional social identity and and they're gonna kind of hang in there as long as as long as there's something to hang on to well, you know, and I, th- I think it's to say that it's not that it's not like I think some people would choose to do that, even knowing everything, just because they're in a good situation, you know, and, and they recognize that. So, like, what's and, amazing and is how that, many people choose to do it who aren't in a very good situation. But I mean, I think in many cases they don't really understand, you know. Exactly. Yes, I would. I would speculate the people who continue to do it not in a good situation don't understand um like what is actually going on yeah anyway so so all of that kind of led into quite a lot i mean this is a little bit of an abrupt segue but whatever the, the it, it's really led to an interest uh a very direct interest in in just alternatives and i want to say uh so, so at that point you're thinking about getting out of the city then i mean at that point i'm kind of freaking out you know i'm kind of like well what the hell am i gonna do yeah and i start like and I start thinking about, yeah, getting out of the city. The first idea that I had was I was going to move to North Carolina. Uh, the logic being that, um, well, first of all, I had taken a trip down there and really liked it. I thought it was just like a really cool place. And I thought that it had like a mild climate and would be a relative. I mean, I had this very kind of crude idea of like, oh, I'm just going to buy some land. I'm going to like grow my own food, you know, whatever that means. Um, not knowing anything about it. And, and I want to say that it was actually my father who, uh, in the course of a conversation about this, like I was telling him, I was basically, I was telling him all this crazy conspiracy stuff, you know, and, and, and I was actually surprised by how, how open he was to it. You know, he like wasn't as, as most good sons do. Uh, <laughs> well, I don't know. Um, it, it just sort of, uh, it, for some reason, it seemed like the thing to do. I don't know. I was, I, I didn't feel like, you know, I, I was older, you know what I mean? And like, I just, I didn't feel like I had that same kind of dynamic to where I should worry about what I I had just always been pretty comfortable, probably more than than is wise, uh, you know, being pretty open about whatever I'm thinking. You know, it's funny. It's funny that like we're we're trained to think that I think I think this is like a like a programming thing for media or something. We're trained to think that like all like our parents generation and the boomer generation are like all like completely narrative, like by the book people, like at least in my family, that's definitely not true. Yeah, they're definitely not all 
you know, um, I mean, there's a lot of complexity to it. You know, I, I don't want to give the impression that like my dad is some kind of, you know, like super, uh, I mean, look, he, he's a pretty intelligent, well-informed guy and everything, but he, he's not necessarily living very differently than, than most people either. And for that matter, neither am I, you know, um, but yeah, for whatever reason, like that didn't turn him off or anything. He was, he was like, sort of, okay, yeah, sure. So what are you going to do now? You know? And I was like, well, I'm going <laughs> to buy a farm in North Carolina, you know, fuck this. And, and he was like, uh, have you ever heard of permaculture or something like that? You know? <laughs> and, and so he started sending me some, you know, YouTube videos and all of this. And, and I began to, uh, really, really kind of go down that rabbit hole. And so that was just, I think the first thing he sent me was a series of videos about this guy named Sepp Holzer, who will definitely link to a couple of his videos in the, um, and, and, uh, his book as well, which I've, how did, how did your dad even hear about this? Like, how did he get into this? I have no idea. I need to ask him actually. I don't know exactly <laughs> how he got into it, what really led him to it. Um, but he's always been a, a pretty prolific, just kind of like, he's just one of those people who is willing to kind of read for long periods of time online, you know, and just like really research things, uh, in ways that I oftentimes don't really have a lot of patience for. But, you know, he was just always kind of been into into online learning. And so he basically this guy, Sepp Holzer, is um, I mean, he's got to be one of the coolest people ever. He, he's basically this he's this Austrian gentleman who lives at the um, lives like way high up on a mountain in the Alps. And he runs this totally I mean, it's not only a self-sustaining farmstead it's he generates a, a pretty handsome profit just from you know from selling his surplus and now at this point really he's famous for uh working as a consultant uh helping other people you know turn their property into something similar and what i found so fascinating about the whole idea is that you know it's interesting enough that someone can manage to to kind of even achieve a surplus let alone sustain themselves at at like that kind of a terrain i mean like if you look at this video i mean this is like this is not like a vermont mountain this is like a mountain mountain like the like this <laughs> like an alps mountain jagged rock you know and somehow this guy has this and it's just like him and his and his nuclear family his wife and he's got a couple of kids and um, and they just, they run this, you know, they, they have this unimaginable abundance, like every kind of, you know, food that you could ever think of, um, you know, and, and just, and it's all totally seasonal and, and blah, 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 you know, and, and no, no, uh, fertilizers, no, you know, kind of modern tech. Well, I won't say no modern technology because he, he definitely, does a lot with like earthworks and and he uses uh, a lot of heavy machinery you know to, to kind of do those things but it's relatively low impact in the sense that you know you kind of you I don't want to jump too far ahead here but you, like there are certain things that if you kind of design 
the land in a certain way, like once, like you don't ever have to do that again, you know, so you're not constantly working with a backhoe or a tractor. You just like do this, you change the landscape and then you get it to work for you. I'll get more into that, but excuse me. So, um, so this guy, Sepp Holzer is, is really fascinating me and I'm like learning about this. And then I kind of start to learn how you can, you can do this in like pretty much every terrain on earth. Like you can do this practically in, in the desert. I mean, literally in the desert, but I mean, not quite in like the Sahara desert, you know, where you just have like nothing but sand, <laughs> but you can definitely, you can live in absolute abundance in like a, you know, like a high mountain desert, you know, like somewhere in Arizona or New Mexico, somewhere like that. Do you um, mean they're not doing this in Saudi Arabia and Dubai? <laughs> <laughs> Dude, you could, I mean, honestly, you, you could, um, you know, there are ways there are ways. I thought they were building solar panels and they were completely organic and off the grid now. Is that right? I haven't heard that. I, honestly, I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> I'm making a joke at all of these oil companies that make all of these marketing materials about how green they are. I mean, but like this is, but Saudi Arabia has been also investing in like re, what they call renewable energy. And stuff yeah, like I'm sure there is. I'm sure there's you know more to that story than they would you know advertise. I'm sure that there are plenty of inputs going into that, but. Uh, but I mean, honestly, you know, there are probably areas in Saudi Arabia, especially like by the coast where, where you could, you could do pretty well, you know, with this kind of thing. Um, I mean, and, and in fact, uh, one of the best, most successful examples uh, that's, that's like on a, on a practically a national level is Israel. Um, and Israel has been doing things, I mean, not really like permaculture, so to speak, but which by the way, forgive that bullshit term. I mean, it's, 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 it's a silly term that I use. It's just a a shorthand for really the term that Joel Salatin used, um, you know, like regenerative farming or regenerative, um, you know, agriculture is, is I think a, a much more accurate term, but it just has too many syllables. See that, that seems to me to imply like more of a large scale operation than it does like a personal homestead. Oh, not necessarily. I mean, it's just, it's literally building fertility in the soil. You know, that's all it means. Um, Regenerate, like basically you're adding value rather than taking away, which is is really one of the main problems with, with, uh, you know, industrial, not even necessarily industrial, just monoculture in general, you know, planting a a field of wheat or corn. Um, What you're doing is you are pretty rapidly denuding nutrients from the topsoil and you're eroding the topsoil and a big part of the reason for that is that you know in many of these places where they do this especially it it tends to a lot of these monocultures take place in semi-arid areas like plains and the the natural ecosystem there evolved to support grass and the grass first of all, maintains, I mean, when you think about what you're looking at, when you look at a field of grass or really any plants is you're looking at a reservoir for water. You know, that thing is, is retaining water within it. Um, if you, you know, were- I just, I just want to plug this right now. Yeah. There's a really good book called the running hair, the secret life of farmland by John Lewis Stemple. It's really good. And it explains um, like exactly the issues with monoculture farming and what it's like to like, operate a farm even just just next to one but he goes into depth and explains like 
individually all of the problems associated with it and and the whole thing really in an interesting way but god yeah no i mean i, I would like to drop a, a copious amount of of uh, sources into this episode because uh there's just there's so much fantastic stuff written about all this but um so i mean yeah that basically grass you know to make a long story short uh grass and, and plant life it shields the topsoil from sunlight and retains water within itself and so it keeps water in that kind of rain cycle when you plow that up and you expose the topsoil what you've done is you've exposed it to the sun and you know over a, a not very long period of time at all uh, you, that soil dries up and blows away in the wind or washes away in the rain and you've basically killed it you've turned a uh, kind of a thriving ecosystem of worms and bacteria and insects and all these fungi and all these things into basically dead dust. Um, but can't we just genetically modify the plants then? Yes, we can. However, <laughs> however, no, I mean, look, they do it, right? So that there's definitely, uh, you, you can. However, what you often find, and I mean, they genetically modify them for all different sorts of purposes, uh, they genetically modify them to, in many cases, withstand drought um, and to kind of be resilient against a lot of these n kind of natural um, sort of uh, reactions. I mean, the, the, a lot of what happens in these monocultures is like these plants get diseases and they get pests because the the diversity of the ecosystem which otherwise existed uh, i mean kind of think of it like a forest right like you hear a lot about the whole you know the reintroduction of the wolves into yosemite and how it made the not yosemite uh, yellowstone and how it made the rivers run again now I, I i'm sure that there's you know there's more to that story but just as a very kind of crude way of illustrating that you know when you, you need like nature kind of creates a balance. You know, you have a certain number of, of predators, a certain number of, of, uh, of prey and, and fungi and insects, and these things work together and they kind of, through the, the competition over resources and the process of survival, they, they balance things and they keep it running. And so yeah, this when, is the point that um, Nassim Taleb and Joe Norman make a lot now. Um, it, it's that you're introducing, like you're introducing a massive amount of tail risk is like the statistical term for it in the model by, by altering the environment in a way that we don't completely understand that's going to have ripple effects further down the chain. Absolutely. And, and so, you know, genetically modified agriculture is a, is a, is a really good example of that. Uh, because what you often see with those things is that, and this is, uh, people have probably heard in recent years of these massive waves of farmer suicides in India. Um, what, what, it, what is happening in many of those cases is that, you know, there, those people are being sold genetically modified seeds, which, uh, are advertised as increasing their yields. And they do, they do increase their yields in the short term, uh, because these plants are, resilient to the stresses of the environment. I mean, there are oftentimes things which do not naturally grow in those environments, certainly not in those concentrations. 
And so if you genetically modify them, you know, you'll have higher yields of cotton, higher yields of wheat, et cetera. However, you know, it also yeah, just you know, really quick, it, it, it like accelerates the destruction of the nutrient table in the soil. And so while you're going to get higher yields for the first couple of years, you get around to year five or six and you're just done. Like it, the soil has nothing left to give. And what, and those people who are really uh, on the brink of like their profit margins are so tiny to begin with, they have to go deeper and deeper into debt in order to afford more and more inputs to keep it going. So like they need to add more and more nitrogen fertilizers and, and all that stuff is, you know, it's expensive. And it's, it's not just in India either. I mean, this is what, this is what happened in my home state in Pennsylvania. And then you drive across the West and you see for hours and hours, just massive large scale farming. And I mean, Obviously, it was small farmers there at one point that have either been driven out of business or had to sell their farms and give up their, like their their farmland and business or God knows what. Absolutely, I mean people should people should really. I mean you're about to do this, but you know I don't think most people in the United States like who live in cities. You know most people who, who we would talk to on a regular basis like they don't they don't drive through places like Nebraska and Iowa and, and you know I mean Iowa is not even such a bad one because it's um, I mean it's bad. But it's not one of the worst examples of of like the desertification that you see through this like intense soil erosion. And that's simply because it's a very, very wet climate. You know, there's they have the Mississippi River running through that general area. And it's just like this massive source of water that is incredibly difficult to get rid of. Um, But they are managing to dump enough, you know, uh, 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 pesticides into that river that they can no longer uh, harvest shrimp in Louisiana. You know, they're, they're I mean, literally, it's like the, it's completely insane. And just to 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 sum sum it up a little bit, like the idea of permaculture is an application of Taleb's concept of anti fragility. So the basic idea is that you're, you're you're building and cultivating something that provides greater yield as time goes on instead of diminishing yield over time. Absolutely. It's it's the idea of large inputs up front, and that, that can take a lot of different forms depending on the, you know, the challenges, if you will, from the human perspective of whatever terrain you're living in. You put in a, a, a large input up front, and over time, you uh, are essentially, you create a situation that adds fertility to the soil. And as you do that, you really, you have to do less and less because it works for you. Now that's not to make it sound as though, you know, someone like Sepp Holzer isn't doing anything. I mean, these people are working all the time, but they're working in a, in a much kind of lower intensity way. This is not the kind of backbreaking labor that is stereotyped of, of, you know, most farmers where they have to plow the field every spring and, and, you know, go through this process. And if something goes wrong, you know, and if they get a pit, then, I mean, it's like these people with monocultures, if they get a pest or if, if there's a, a, you know, an unforeseen weather event, I mean, that's it. They're like, they're ruined. Their entire lives are just like over, you know, they have nothing. You know, another common thing that people bring up is that like, oh, it's it's more efficient and how are you going to feed all of these people without doing that? But I think what people don't understand is that if people were living like more in line with nature on, on a homestead, making their own food, 
like that would affect the social dynamics like like all the way to the point of having children you know like like you wouldn't have eight kids <laughs> if you were on a farm that could sustain four people well you know? i mean i so i mean yeah you wouldn't have eight kids if you were on a farm that could sustain four people however i also think it's important to understand that it's not an accident that in in decades past uh well maybe more like in centuries past um, you know, children were thought were considered to be an asset to a family, not a drain on their resources. Uh, and part of the reason for that is, you know, you're creating another human being who is going to eventually contribute labor to your operation. Right. Like, so you, so you should be producing more value, the more people that you have, exactly. if, if you're actually, if you're uh, actually doing it right. Like, yeah. Uh, and, and I mean, t- to your earlier point that you made about like, you know, the idea of more efficiency and higher yields and, and like, how are you going to feed the world? And this is something you kind of hear a lot of. One of the major assumptions that, I mean, when people ask a question like that, like, oh, well, I mean, you know, this is ridiculous. Like, how are we going to feed, you know, uh, all these billions of people by growing gardens? Well, first of all, uh, you're not going to have people subsisting off of, you know, bread and pasta and, and like all of these extremely unhealthy, by the way. Um, and I, I don't think people realize just how bad the modern diet is for us. It's not just like the stereotypical junk food. You know, the, the grain-based diet is just absolutely disastrous for human health. Uh, and, you know, the, the, really the only justification for it is these kind of centralized populations. You know, the, the reason that grain became such a staple of modern diets, you know, since like, you know, 10,000 years ago or more is because it's storable, you know, it's non, it's relatively non-perishable. And so you can store it for long periods of time. And that uh, is really handy if you are basically a central planner who is trying to administer a population or administer an empire. Um, And, you know, really all we have now is just a, a kind of modern, more technologically developed version of that, but uh, it has really created massive amounts of, of health problems in the population. It's very much obviously like a top-down solution. Like it's like somebody's looking at the problem and saying like, we have 400 million people. How are we going to feed all of these people? Let's just build massive farms and pump the food in. Like, like that, it sounds so crude, but that's obviously what it is. It's 100% what it is. And it, and it ultimately comes down to the uh, assumption that, you know, human beings need to be kind of, uh, you know, administered to and, and frankly, just sort of controlled like cattle, you know, is how and, I you know people it. like people would say that, oh, like, that's just the free market, like working this out. But it, none of these businesses would be viable if they didn't receive massive subsidies from the government. It's basically a welfare state. I mean, it's a, the, these are, it, it's more effective to think of a massive agribusiness company like Monsanto or even a food production company like Post or, you know, any of these these things as uh, as like departments of the federal government than it is as some kind of a business, you know, because, you they- know, economically, it's interesting because like I, I often say we don't even have a free market now, but like even in this late stage of capitalism, like the market is still sending us signals of what's feasible and what isn't feasible. Like, like we, we know that these industries would not survive if it weren't for subsidies or if it weren't for bailouts. 
but but yet we're still going to double down and continue fueling the whole thing. Well, the vast majority of people really don't know that. I mean, I can tell you from experience, even even people, um, you know, like in, in rural Vermont, I mean, it's one of the saddest things in the world to see, quite frankly, because this place here is, uh, it's like a, I hate to use a term like this, but it's a breadbasket, you know, and, and they don't grow a whole ton of grain here, although unfortunately they do grow some some corn. Most of it is like for, for feed for, for cattle. But um, there's a, a ton of locally produced, high quality, high nutrition, just fantastic food, you know, vegetables and meat and all of these things that are really good for people and produced very sustainably and, and just, uh, I mean, the best, you know, it's one of the, one of the reasons that I moved here is because I have such easy access to unbelievable quality local produce. However, I mean, the vast majority of people in this state are still, well, I guess not the vast majority. The vast majority of them are like around Burlington, you know, and they're all these Seattle type people. So they're all into their organic (laughs) Trader Joe's and all this. But, you know, the poor people, the farmers, um, who grow, who like operate the kind of larger dairies and the, the people who are living in these like rundown post-industrial towns. Uh, I mean, you ask them and I have, like I've hung out with some, some characters around here just kind of trying to get to know people and, you know, they eat out of gas stations uh, because, and like I've kind of tried to offer alternatives. Like I've even, I have this one dude that I, that I know around here who was like a caretaker on my property for a little while. And he's, <laughs> I mean, you know, he's, he's, he's a local for sure. And he, uh, he eats out of gas stations. And like, I offered him one time, like a couple of times, like some really good food, you know, and kind of tried to get into a discussion with him about like, yeah, like, you know, yes, this costs you more upfront, like for sure, you know, this sandwich costs you like more than that sandwich, but like, can you taste the difference? And like, does it, you know, and just kind of trying to get him to like, think about it. And it, it, I mean, even this, I feel stupid even relating this conversation because it's like, you know, how could I even think that some, someone in that kind of state of mind is, is reachable. But like I said before, I have a tendency to just like talk a lot about things and to people who I probably have no business, but, um, <laughs> Uh, it's just like not even in his consciousness, you know, like he's just like, dude, I mean, this costs $3. Like, why would I spend $10 when I can spend $3? Are you crazy? Like he looks at me like I'm a fucking idiot, you know? Um, And I I can't really explain to him like, you know, government subsidies. And like, I mean, it's unfortunate. I'm not trying to sound demeaning. It's just like when, when a person lacks so much, I mean, they don't even understand the words that you use to, you know, to explain these things, it's just like, there's nowhere to go, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's ultimately, there's just a lot of individual work that has to be done, like to get you to the point where you're even going to be receptive to this kind of stuff. And it's never going to, ha- I mean, for most people, I'm sorry, it's just never going to happen. Like pe- people are, no, but way- that's fine. We don't, we don't care about them. No. We're, we're <laughs> moved, this, this podcast is for people who have moved past. Them. That's very true. That's very true. Yeah. If you're listening okay, so to take us, so take us back. So now you're, we got to the part of the story where you're starting to get into, into permaculture and the sep holds. Right, so then, right. So then where do we go from so there? Kind of starting to learn more about that. And then, um, yeah, I guess I had the, the North Carolina idea and then, 
uh, you know, settling down with my uh, future wife and uh, starting to talk about raising a family, uh, got the, the job in New York. Um, we had our first child while living in my grandmother's apartment in New York. That was crazy. Um, then, you know, just like all of this time we're like kind of fantasizing about and planning this, like, like how the hell are we going to get out of here? You know, like what, what are we going to do to sort of escape this rat race and like, you know, live a, and, and like my wife at the time was, uh, she was very much on board with all of this, at least in theory. And, uh, so eventually, I mean, later we moved out to Seattle, but at some point we decided we got like this book. Uh, once again, thank you, Alex Jones, uh, had this, this guy, on. <laughs> he had this ridiculous dude. I mean, who was like, he claimed to be some kind of like a, a relocation expert, um, and he was this like, just really crusty, just dude who was not permaculture oriented at all. Um, but somehow we got, we got it into our head. <laughs> he, was an, he was an extractor <laughs> getting people out. <laughs> I don't know. We were just kind of like looking for anything, you know what I mean? Like we, we just were, were really, um, sort of hungry for information and, got a hold of this book. And even though this book didn't exactly rate Vermont, you know, at the top of the list by any means, we had a certain kind of like things that we were looking for. So, uh, you know, we wanted to find a place that was relatively kind of like unpolluted. Um, and, you know, so, so ideally, like if you're talking about a state, you know, somewhere either with kind of stronger environmental laws or, uh, you know, kind of a lack of industry such that perhaps those laws weren't as necessary, you know. Um, and it was also uh, guns were an important thing. I really wanted to go somewhere where I didn't have to worry about guns. Like I could just have guns and just not have to worry about it. Uh, and let's see, I wanted to go somewhere where, you know, this kind of lifestyle was more or less socially acceptable where uh, kind of holistic medical practices were relatively socially acceptable because you would be amazed at uh, the kinds of legal difficulties that just like naturopaths face in, in, in some, you know, Southern States, for instance. Um, so, you know, we kind of like looked at everything on balance and eventually decided that Vermont, was a good idea. And I, uh, bought a piece of land here. Now, um, I will say that I have made like, no one should listen to this and think of it as like, Oh, you know, I'm like, please don't do what I did, uh, or, or, <laughs> or, or think of this as like an instructional guide to how you can do it. Uh, I think it's extremely important to understand that, you know, you, you really have to figure out what's going to work for you, exactly what kind of balance you're looking for. I mean, if you're interested in this at all, obviously, uh, you know, think very carefully, not only about what your actual challenges are, what your financial situation is, but be realistic, be honest with yourself about exactly what you're really going to do, like what you really So want. is it is it a thing that you could go like, 
a quarter in or a half in, or is it something that really requires like full-time work if that's what you're going to like do? No, it's, it's totally, one of the coolest things about all this is that it really is the kind of thing that you can, you can go pretty gradually. Um, and I mean, case in point, I've barely done anything <laughs> at this point. I mean, I, I've, all I've really done since moving out here is do a little bit of gardening and a little bit of hunting, a little bit of fishing, um, you know, a little bit of experimenting with things like composting and, and whatnot. I mean, just very, very basic stuff that plenty of people in the suburbs do in their backyards, which by the way, is another thing. Uh, you know, if, if significant numbers of people in suburban and even some urban areas, especially out West, did this kind of just like grew their own food in their backyards and took money out of the supermarket food system. Uh, this is, it would be a massive game changer. I think that it would literally change the world. So there, there's a very strong argument to be made, you know, with certain notable exceptions, of course. I mean, in some, in some places like, you know, you, you try and grow food in your backyard and like, you'll, you'll get evicted, you know, you, you can even get arrested in some places for storing rainwater. But the point is, if you can make it work, you know, do it however you, you can. Uh, and, and, and you're already kind of making an improvement in your life. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I moved out here and the idea was that I would buy a piece of land, uh, and, over time, because, you know, land is cheaper than a house. And at the time, I really did not want the whole mortgage thing. Like, that was very scary to me, the idea of, like, indebting myself with a mortgage. Um, <clears throat> and so I decided to buy a piece of land, which was basically woods. And the logic there was that I would, you know, use the, the resources of the actual forest to contribute not only to building a home like I was thinking I just I had this very idealistic idea that I would like literally like go to the woods start chopping down trees and like you know hewing logs and build a log cabin you know uh, it's none of that has happened I'm here to tell you uh it's been a <laughs> few years and and you know uh, I have cut down a couple of trees but uh, I mean I don't even own a chainsaw yet because chainsaws cost like eight hundred dollars you know um, and if you don't know how to use one very well, then you're either going to kill yourself or wish that you had killed yourself. So, <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of complexity to all of this and it has been a very kind of, you know, two steps forward, one step back kind of a process for me. I, everything that, you know, when I came out here, I had my family with me. Now I'm divorced. You know, it's, it's this whole process certainly did not uh <laughs> did not do anything to make my marriage any easier you know uh it's been a financial struggle trying to kind of make a living in a in a rural place while, while trying to work on all of these things so definitely i mean keep all of that stuff in mind if you're actually thinking. i mean it's not easy this is the thing there's a reason that people like to live in cities because you don't have to worry about anything and, you know, and this is not to try and scare anyone off either. You know, you, you just kind of have to, if you're going to do this, you have to understand why. And you have to understand that there are going to be massive costs 
you know, and, and you're going to have to really try and become a different kind of person is really what it comes down to. Well, I mean, that's exactly what's going on in cities right now. You know, I think people are looking at cities exactly the same way you just described uh, your, your rural situation. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's very mean? clear that there's a lot of social changes going on right now. And if you're going to want to live and participate in the society in the city, you're going to have to change the way that you look at things too. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I feel like uh, we were talking in the last episode, you know, or even just like have the traditional sort of steady career that people have generally been, you know, accustomed to, to having, or at least to believing that they'll have, um, you know, it's getting to the point where if you want one of those, you better be able to get hired at, at Google or Facebook or one of those places. And there are all sorts of things that go along with that, you know, and you better be adaptive with your, with your ideology as well. Because I mean, it's, it's accelerating to a point now where things are changing extremely fast and people can't speak up about, about what they think. And I mean, like the way that I see it, it's becoming more appealing now to, to exit the cities. And I think that's, I think that's what a lot of people are waking up to during the coronavirus. For sure. And so I guess, I mean, I don't know. I I feel like I kind of, um, I don't want to close this on like too dismal of a note and make it sound like, you know, (laughs) if people try and do this, they're going to ruin their lives. I, I, I will be clear with everyone. I don't regret one single thing that I've done. When I, set out on this process, I did it with the full understanding that I was going to be taking lots of risks, that I was doing this the hard way, uh, that I was going to learn everything from scratch, and that I was going to make a lot of mistakes. And, you know, if there's anything that I can tell everyone, it's like, just don't be discouraged when things go wrong understand what you're and and don't be discouraged by the need to adjust your expectations either you know adjusting your expectations is not tantamount to failure it could very well be the case that your original idea simply wasn't realistic you know and you have to adjust what you're trying to do um or at least the timeline there are just there's any number of variations to this sort of thing just like there are to anything else it's just that this is the sort of thing where it's very different. And, and here's the other thing. I'm doing this completely alone, you know? Like, I have no help from anyone, pretty much. Um, you know, that didn't necessarily... I mean, there are a lot of people in an area like this, like when you get out to the mountains, you know, people are generally, if you kind of meet the right kinds of people and you you're do it the right way, you know, you'd be surprised at how many people are willing to just like show up, you know, in exchange for pizza and beer and like, you know, do, do some dig some ditches with an excavator on your property. And just like, I mean, seriously, like that happens here all the time. And now a lot of people just have that stuff. You know, a lot of these poor fucking toothless people, you know, have like tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of heavy machinery that they just have sitting around in their backyard. Um, so, so it's just a very different kind of kind of culture. And um, there's all sorts of different variations to how these kinds of things can go. And uh, it's been a very rewarding experience. You know, if nothing else, what I can honestly say is, you know, to whatever extent I still live a workaday lifestyle, which I basically do. I mean, I work at a, 
university, you know, uh, yeah, it's in a, but, but, but you know what? I live in beautiful kind of serene environment. Uh, right now I happen to live walking distance from where I work, so I don't have much of a commute, but even back when I did, one of my favorite things about Vermont is that billboards are illegal here. So like, <laughs> oh, dude, you, you don't even know like what a difference it makes. I mean, it's just, it's, it's night and day. You just, you know, your, 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 uh, your commute is, uh, is trees instead of, you know, some ugly dentist advertising us. <laughs> I think that sounds quite appealing to a lot of people. Yeah, right I now. Really, <laughs> you know, so, um, what do you think we ended here and go into this more in the future? Yeah, this is this is pretty good, I think. Um, uh, yeah, we're going to try and do a lot more episodes on this kind of stuff, guys. For uh, sure. Just, just so you know. Yeah, um, I'd like to get some uh, some experts to to come on and, and give their two cents. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll kind of keep you posted as to how that process goes. But um, I have a lot to lot to say on these matters, as you can tell. And um, we definitely want to talk as much as possible about it in the future. So thank you all for listening. Thank you all for our, um, our subscribers. Thank you for your support. And uh, we look forward to talking to you again soon.